Good morning, friends. My name is Al Lopez. This morning, our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark. So please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28 from the New American Standard Bible. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have? With each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to share the word with you this morning. Um, Before we begin, I need each of you to kind of whisper prayers throughout the sermon because the projector went out three times this morning, and I would like that to not happen. And uh, if this keeps happening, we may have to drop a line from the projector and connect it, hardwire it, but that'd be such a mess. It's so inelegant, isn't it? All right. About a month from now, on March 20th, we're going to have one service at 5 p.m., so we won't have any morning services, and that'll be to accommodate the Mercer Island Half Marathon, and if you are here, somebody that uh, is running, good for you, and um, if you're not, you have an opportunity to volunteer, Uh, so there's information about that in your bulletins and in the loop. Okay. Uh, We're going to continue in our new series today that Julie kicked off last week. The title of it is Miracles, the Empathy and Efficacy of Christ. And what we're saying uh, throughout the series is that divine empathy, which results in miracles, is effective. It's different. It's unlike anything that people had seen before, unlike anything that we see today. It breaks the mold and it gets the job done. Uh, We're going to see a relationship uh, between this idea of how when the mission is clarified, then new methods can emerge. You can expand your repertoire of how you accomplish that mission, but only if you increase in clarity about that mission is. If you're unclear about the mission, then you get wed to your old methods. Whether they are working or not, that's all you know. That's what's clear to you, how things are done around here or how things have always been done. But when the mission becomes clear, then your imagination is activated and new methods begin to emerge. 
And that's what Christ represents. That when He comes to us, because His mission, His reason for why He's here is so clear that He's willing to get the job done, even if it means blowing our minds and blowing up paradigms and constructs. And Jesus is always breaking old constructs. He talked about this very explicitly through the metaphor of new and old wineskins. And we'll get to that at some point. And as we go through this series as a church, I'd like us to ponder the question, what is our mission? Why do we exist as a church? How do we justify all of the resources, time and money and energy and physical space we take up uh, here on Mercer Island on this planet? Why do we exist? What is the meaning of our existence? And as that becomes clear, then how we accomplish that mission, what church looks like, can begin to expand and grow along with the mission that's clear to us. Uh, For this new series, we're going to try something new also. We're making sermon notes available online, and uh, Julie has made her notes available online already. The link for that is in the loop, and if you aren't getting the loop, you can fill in your connection cards, okay, and we'll get the loop to you. Uh, But the way uh, we want to sort of begin to make the sermon notes and the resources available to you Uh, It's kind of a a lazy way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just create a PDF of my sermon slides and the notes that I actually preach from. And so if you've ever wondered what what the heck my notes look like, you'll get to see it for yourself. Uh, At least to satisfy some curiosity you might have, go check that out. But I feel really nervous and self-conscious and unsure about this. It kind of feels like um, uh, a bit too transparent, but there you go. We'll try that, and if my nerves break down, I'll have to uh, change that. But for now, the notes will be available uh, starting Tuesdays, okay? So check that out. And uh, one last thing about this, if you're excited about, if you're somebody that gets excited about the idea of making resources available to other people, you can sort of geek out on that and think about that and be creative, and you have a couple of hours a week to give to that, talk to me. I will make all sorts of things available to you, and you can write out a transcript, and you can uh, look up the links that I throw up and put them all in there. You can make it whatever you uh, think will be helpful to the congregation. So if that's you, let me know. Uh, You'll be rewarded unhandsomely for that work. (laughs) But not with God. Your reward will be great with God. Okay. Uh, Today, I want to start with some critical, cynical, and I think well-deserved questions about this idea of miracles in the first place. I know that lots of people wonder if miracles happen, if that's just a a category, a word that we have for scientifically yet unexplained phenomena that we experience. Um, I think I have some baggage about this that I want to start with. So the first question I have is, How are ancient stories of miracles that may or may not be true relevant to me today? Yes, they are in the Bible, but did it actually happen? Isn't this how ancient people explained the way things based on their lack of scientific understanding of how? They didn't have germ theory, folks, right? So maybe they thought everything was a miracle. Uh, Second question I have 
is uh, beyond reductionism. And reductionism, maybe for this question, we'll say it's either over-spiritualizing, which is to make everything spiritual, or rationalizing, which is to deconstruct it down to some uh, explainable, uh, you know, uh, explainable way. Uh, Beyond reductionism, what do I make of miracles? And then a third question I have is, don't miracle stories tend to prey on the weak or the desperate or the irrational anyways? Isn't that what miracle workers do? Isn't that what televangelists do? They promise miracles, and the ones who fall for it are the ones who are desperate. Right? And then finally, I have, uh, if we talk about miracles today, then when does the pitch about money or obedience or faith, the bartering and bargaining concept, come in in the sermon? You know, that's what I'm aware of. If somebody starts talking about miracles, I immediately start holding tighter to my wallet because I know the pitch is coming. And that's, I think, uh, sort of a cultural uh, sort of baggage, expectation that non-Christians have about Christians talking about miracles. Um, They have to pay for them. Did you know that? So uh, those are some of the questions I have, and I list these out because I imagine some of us have them, and lots of people outside the church have these questions or some version of these questions. Today what I want to do is I want to invite us to think about miracles in a different way. Think about miracles today in a way that makes good sense and invokes in you some belief in miracles. Even if you don't believe in miracles, I want to crack open your heart and your mind just a little bit so that maybe you're open to believing that miracles happen today. And third, I would like to awaken in you then a desire to see miracles in your life. Three points and then a conclusion. We'll have no explicit application points today. Um, One, authority, and that's asking the question, what does the boss think? Two, Sabbath, and that's asking the question, do you like having to translate all the time? And then third, demons, are you sure you don't have any? Okay, authority, Sabbath, and demons. And what I want to do is read the two other stories that uh, sandwich the, verse, uh, the verses that Al read for us. Um, I had those verses read for us because they uh, encapsulate all the things we're going to talk about today, but I think the other two stories are also helpful, so I'm going to read that for us. Follow along with me on the screen, starting with verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Going on a little further, he saw James, a son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away from him. Um, begin with verse 22, with this concept of authority. Verse 22 says this. 
They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Highlight this word, authority. Now, all of Christ's miracles in the book of Mark, because this is the first thing that Mark mentions before Jesus performs miracles, is framed within this concept of Jesus' authority. Authority is the Greek word exousia, and it's not the same word as the word for sheer power, which is the word dunamis. But this word authority, exousia, is describing on top of dunamis, which is sheer power, but also positional power. And so I think uh, in a previous series we defined authority as authority equals might, which is dunamis, plus right, which is positional power. And so somebody isn't just coming on the scene who's just stronger than you, but he actually has the right, even if he wasn't stronger than you. Okay? Authority is might plus right. In other words, Jesus is the boss, and he has the right and the might to get things done, to lay down the law. Jesus isn't doing new things, but he's doing things the way they were always meant to be done in the first place. Meaning when Jesus shows up on the scene, he starts calling disciples, and he starts healing people and casting out demons, and in general, breaking paradigm with the way religion was done back then, he's not doing a new thing. But because he is authority, he's coming down with divine authority. This is Jesus saying, no, this is the way God always wanted it done. It's not that I'm straying from how things should be done. It's that you have already strayed from how God wanted it done. You claim to be religious leaders who represent God here on earth. You're supposed to be leaders and guides who are faithfully executing the way God meant things to always be done. But you have strayed, and me, with authority, are making things right again. Jesus is doing all these rewords. It's restoring. He's he's causing us to remember. He's creating revival. He's calling us to repent. He is resetting. He's making things right again. And this is always an interesting thing to realize that it's the workers who've gone astray. And when the boss shows up, everybody sort of starts aligning again and remembering again what the will of the boss was in the first place. You know the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Um, I was pre-med when I was an undergrad, so I worked at a bunch of labs. And uh, true to my uh, sort of catalytic personality style, I came to the lab. This lab has existed long before uh, I got there. I'm just a lowly undergrad student uh, studying to be a doctor. And I show up at the lab, but I have all these new ideas about how to run the lab. And so I'm just a minimum wage volunteer sort of, uh, you know, working person there. And I just started changing the system. I started out with their database, and then from the database, I started cataloging all the supplies they had, and then I started uh, a new labeling system and started moving things around. That really got the scientists and researchers irritated at me, but I believed it was better. 
But there was one, uh, one doctor who was pretty irritated at all the change that I was bringing. And uh, he said, Peter, you know, uh, I, I really appreciate the way you're working and what you're bringing here. But it's, it's hard for me uh, to sort of have things not where I remember where things were. And I explained, well, you know, if you check the database, you can see where everything is. It's all labeled. I have physical diagrams taped up everywhere. And, uh, said, you know, let's go talk to the boss the guy who was heading up this whole research project. And I was working on this uh, very specific kidney disease at the time. And so we go into the office together, and uh, the doctor presents to the boss uh, what I had been doing all this time. And to the surprise of the doctor, the boss says, you know, actually, I've been made aware of all that Peter's been doing, and I think it's a vast improvement over what we had. And so actually what I want to do is I want to cut Peter loose even more and ask him to do more of what he's been doing. And the doctor sort of face dropped. We walked out together, and we both got marching orders about what the boss thought. Here's religion happening. Here's all these people, here Mark calls them scribes, who had their own ways of depicting God. They are ambassadors for God, for Yahweh. And they've created all these rules and laws and a system by which, within which everybody was to comply and live. And they created these pathways and they said, walk these pathways and you will get to God. If this, then God. If you, then God. These constructs. And then Jesus shows up. And he starts doing things totally different. And everybody's getting upset. But they recognize there's a kind of authority in the way that he moves, in the way that he speaks. And then his words and deeds are verified by his works, the miracles. Now, what they understood was human beings can't do miracles. If miracles happen, then it's of God. And if it's of God, then it means that God himself is validating the new ways that Jesus is doing things. And these new ways actually are not new at all, but this is what God always wanted. Jesus isn't taking them, leading them astray, but he's actually aligning them to God's will. And it was the scribes and the religious leaders who had it wrong. They are the ones who had strayed. So authority, when Jesus comes and he speaks and he moves with authority. And then these words and acts are verified by miracles. Jesus is saying, no, you got the mission wrong. That's why your methods are all screwed up. Your methods were ineffective. That way of depicting God was oppressive to people. It wasn't actually helpful to people. It wasn't connecting people to God. It was actually causing them to stumble. It was your own ideas that you were putting on people. And Jesus comes with authority and says, let me show you what the mission of God is. Let me show you what the heart of God is. Let me show you what God cares about. And let me show you the things that God is willing to do to convey his will and his heart to people. And so people are responsive. And here we see this principle at work. 
that the mission dictates methods. And that focus on the mission leads to an expansion of the methods. That intent defines content. When we know what and why God wants to do something, it informs how we do it. That's the content. And I think it's fair to say, what is our mission here at this church? Are our methods in alignment with God's mission? I think that's a question we should ask every week, every year, every season. Every time there's a generational change, we need to ask, what's God's mission now, today? What does he want to do? And then we ask, how do we do it? And Jesus, as we see here, is happy to show us. He's happy to show us. Jesus reminds people of God's vision for his people. Second, the Sabbath. Verse 21 says, and immediately on the Sabbath. Now remember, in chapter 1, Mark is framing the whole of his book, the book of miracles. Right? And it's very important for Mark to start out with this framework. And so we have authority, and now we have immediately on the Sabbath. Why does Mark start right away with the controversy of the Sabbath? Why did Jesus deliberately contradict Sabbath regulations? Why did Jesus pick a fight with these people? Jesus could have done exactly the same things when it was not the Sabbath. There are seven days in a week. He could have done it for six. Why does Jesus pick on the Sabbath? Why does Jesus challenge the establishment about this? And why does Mark make it a point to frame his whole book around this concept of how Jesus contradicted the Sabbath regulations? Why did Jesus do this? And we know later on that this uh, uh, challenge of the establishment, particularly about Sabbath regulations, was a huge part of what got him killed. So we have to understand that Jesus is making an important point here that was worth dying for. Why was this worth all the trouble? Now, Jesus teaches about this very thing, about why he had to engage the controversy of the Sabbath. And he has this one small statement. He says this, Man was not made for the keeping of the Sabbath laws, but... The Sabbath was made for, the, for man. The Sabbath was created for the purpose of enhancing, perpetuating, and honoring life. Life does not exist so that those who are alive can keep the Sabbath. The keeping of the Sabbath was never the point. The point always was life. And the Sabbath was created as a way to help people live. It was created as a way to be of value to those who are alive. To enhance life. To perpetuate life. To honor life. And we see from the original intent of the Sabbath is so core to God's intent for us. And the Sabbath teaching, if you remember from the sermon, Deep Rest, was that we derive, we derive our value 
our worth from God's love for us. It's not from what we produce. It's not our usefulness. We don't earn our value. What we do, our performance, has nothing to do with how valuable we are. And you recognize that's so different to your paycheck or to your worth in your workplace or to your usefulness to your friends or even family members. You don't do anything. And yet you are of utmost value. And God loves you. And that's core to the purpose of the Sabbath. When you cease from work, which is what the word Sabbath means, to cease. When you cease from work and God continues to love on you in the exact same way as when you are working really hard, you begin to get the message over time as you practice the Sabbath every week that God loves you and has nothing to do with your performance. You don't have to bring anything to the table to be loved by God. And we need this kind of contrast. We need regular reminders of this foundational fact that our value and God's love for us does not derive from our work. And and it's teaching us to see other people through God's eyes, that we deem value in other people, that people have supreme value over and against anything else. Nothing physical, nothing inanimate is close, comes close to the value that people have. And this is what the Sabbath was designed to teach us. And yet the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' time completely lost touch with this idea that people are of supreme value to God. That the whole point of religion is not religion. It's people. That the keeping of the law is not as important as people. That the keeping of the law, the purpose of the keeping of the law is to be helpful to people. And if it's genuinely, truly not helpful to people, then it's not worth a, it's not worth a dime. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey when he is challenging Sabbath regulations off the bat. There's a couple of really helpful resources that I have for, uh, uh, for you up on the screen, which are all available in your new sermon resources folder, uh, if you will look in your loop. Uh, but it basically, the first link talks about this whole new study of addiction. And one of the surprising results of this study about addiction is one of the key factors to breaking addiction, even addiction as powerful as heroin addiction, can be uh, counteracted by our connection to community. That when we have relational support systems in place, then we have the resources we need to break away from addictive behaviors in our life. That one of the primary causes of addiction is loneliness and isolation. Now, if you don't believe me, you can Google this and you will come up with thousands of articles written about this. This is very much an emerging field of study, but it's becoming quickly established and accepted in the scientific community. So you can read about that. The second uh, resource, uh, I just started reading about this this week. Harvard University released a 74-year study about the one 
and really only contributing factor to what we call happiness. What really makes people happy? And most people, we start out assuming that if we had money, if we had resources, then we'd be happy. If we had things, we'd be happy. If we had some sort of uh, safety and comfort and security, we would be happy. If we could experience pleasures evermore, we would be happy. And then this Harvard study comes along and says, We've been tracking people for 74 years, and now we've added their spouses to it. And most of these people, there's still over 60 of them alive. Uh, They're all in their 90s, and they're still tracking these people every year. And you know what the one answer they're getting is? It's people. It's relationships. And they go into a little bit of what they mean by that, but it's basically when you're connected to meaningful relationships, you're happy. And they talk about the mental health benefits and physical health benefits and longevity benefits of being connected to people, that life really is all about people. Somehow, over time, people begin to forget that life and everything in it is all about people people. That at the end of the day, all that really matters is people. It's not what you get done. It's not what you have, but it's who you're connected to. And nothing else in the world, according to the Bible, and even according to Harvard University, is people. People. It's about people. It's about these really annoying, warm bodies next to you right now. Without each other, we start regressing really quick. We become our basest versions of ourselves, And physically, we start dying, let alone emotionally and spiritually. <clears throat> How do we stray so far from this truth? You know, I think about our church today, not just our church, but the church in here in America. And I think about uh, all the non-Christians I interact with. In fact, I had sort of an uh, emotionally difficult uh, conversation with a non-Christian uh, just this very week about her concept of Christians and the church. And just talking about it, she started crying. She was weeping openly in front of me because of all the pain that she's felt from the church. And just talking about it with me just created, just, you know, resurfaced all of this pain that she was carrying inside about the church. Today, she is a shamanist. She believes in all sorts of different things, but not Christianity. Don't we understand as a people that the church, religion, the Bible, all of this, it's about people? that it's about life? How have we forgotten that it's not about right and wrong, that right and wrong is about people? You know, we think about even theology. What we learn from C.S. Lewis and other great minds is that God himself is defined as a community. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that truth itself somehow is relational, that reality itself, the fabric of reality is relational. Because God himself is reality. 
And here in Jesus' time, there were these religious leaders who were beating up on people, who were creating an oppressive environment for people for the sake of keeping the law, forgetting altogether that the law exists for the well-being and the flourishing of people. And I think about that, and I can judge those people harshly. And then I think about our church today, and I think about the ways that Christians so quickly are willing to throw away people in order to stay true to our constructs and methods. Listen, no matter how great your theology is, if it doesn't have room for the deepest needs of the human heart, then get rid of that theology. It's no longer true. Because your job, the whole point of theology, is to be able to hold people and love them well. What does love look like? What you need is a vision of what love is. How do you love people? Our society, especially religious society, is divided over changing culture and norms that are accepted in our culture today. And we are willing to hate people for it, throw people away, and tear down relationships. What? For the sake of what? Holding on to your construct. I'm telling you, your construct is subservient to the reason why the construct exists in the first place. And what is that reason? It's people. Think about the worst person you can think of. The most despicable person. That person somehow is loved by God and God is wanting to reach and help and save that person. And if your missiology or theology or ecclesiology or whatever ology you hold to, if that can't reach the basis of people, there's no room for me in your ology. Why do you exist? It's because somebody was willing to break construct in order to reach you, to connect with you, and to include you somehow in God's love. Somehow you are now, you are now part of God's redemptive plan and work here on the face of this earth. And your job is to get on board with God's mission, which is people. You can keep the Sabbath all you want, but if you keep the Sabbath... Instead of loving people or even your own soul, you've missed the point. And it's worth Jesus dying to convey this truth to us. Jesus challenged the establishment about Sabbath regulations because their regulations were blind to people. What is the church? Why do we exist? Jesus reminds people of God's intention for his people. Lastly, we have demons. Verse 34, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Um, We may get into study of demons or demonology later on as there are several of these uh, exorcism passages. But for today... Uh, I want us to appreciate that maybe most of us don't have personal stories of demon possession or demonization as in the book of Mark. Anybody have demonization stories? Anybody demonized here today? Any demons want to out themselves right now? Okay. 
So I think that's true. Uh, most of us don't have these stories, but I think we all can appreciate that we are controlled by spirits that are not of us. Maybe a spirit of timidity that keeps us from moving forward and keeps us passive-aggressive rather than being active and engaged in our life. Maybe we have a critical spirit, and you don't want to be critical, but that spirit takes over, and when the moment or opportunity arrives, you start being critical of people. And so maybe we don't have demons, and we wouldn't use that language even, but we understand that moments arrive, and at those moments, often we lose. They're directing us. They're controlling how we act, how we think, how we feel, how we relate to people, the decisions we make. And somebody who knows you and loves you is next to you thinking, gosh, what's wrong with Mark? What's wrong with John? What's wrong with Susan? Think about all these. Why are they that way? What happened to them? Well, maybe they're not demonized, but they have spirits overpowering them at those moments. I can appreciate that my problem is not that my freedoms are taken away from me from the outside. It's not some outer forces oppressing me and now I'm not free. My primary problem is that from within, I am oppressed. That I am not free in the sense that I don't have, when the moment arrives, the power to do what I myself want to do. I'm a conflicted, divided man. Paul talks about this, that I keep doing the things I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of death? That's Paul describing a kind of demonization where I'm in conflict and controlled by other spirits. And I think you are too. C.S. Lewis talked about this, and he said, Our hells that we are in are locked from the inside. That we are not free because we're not free on the inside. And then Dallas Willard, he's a, he's a late uh, professor of philosophy at University of Southern California, uh, really popular, famous Christian author and speaker, mostly wrote about this concept of Christian formation. And uh, he has this quote in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says this, <clears throat> Thus, no one chooses in the abstract to go to hell or even to be the kind of person who belongs there. But their orientation towards self leads them to become the kind of person for whom away from God is the only place for which they are suited. It is a place they would, in the end, choose for themselves rather than come to humble themselves before God and accept who He is. Whether or not God's will is infinitely flexible, the human will is not. There are limits beyond which it cannot bend back, cannot turn or repent, one should seriously inquire if, if to live in a world permeated with God and the knowledge of God is something they themselves truly desire. If not, they can be assured that God will excuse them from his presence. They will find their place in the outer darkness of which Jesus spoke. But the fundamental fact about them will not be that they are there, but that they have become people so locked into their own self-worship and denial of God that they cannot want God. 
we should be very sure that the ruined soul is not one who has missed a few or more less important theological points and will flunk a theological examination at the end of life. Hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Outer darkness is for one who, everything said, wants it whose entire orientation has slowly and firmly set itself against God and therefore against how the universe actually is. It is for those who are disastrously in error about their own life and their place before God and man. Now, Dallas Willard, C.S. Lewis, all these people are talking about this reality that we are somehow demonized from within, that there is some other forces acting on us from the inside. And we can't do the things we want to do. We have values, but we can't live by these values. We have goals, but we can't achieve them. We know right and wrong, but we can't choose at the right moment because we are enslaved and addicted and overpowered by demons. You can put that in quotes or not. Literal or metaphorical, we are demonized. And we, as part of our salvation experience, whether you acknowledge Jesus or God or believe in God at all, we all still need exorcism, some kind of healing and help from within, something to pry us loose from the inside. We need a force greater than us, greater than the forces within us to come in and cast out to unclench us and save us. We need that. Name one person, Christian or not, that does not have spirits oppressing them from within. And so Christ reminds us, his people, that God has the means to save his people, that he has the power to exorcise demons, that he can save you, not just from the outside, which is just behavior modification, but he can save you from the inside, the exorcism of your demons. And then in conclusion, uh, verse 38 says, he said to them, let us go so that I may preach there also, for that is where I, that is what I came for. Here we have now in the final verse of Mark chapter 1, Jesus explicit stating of the purpose for which he himself exists here on planet earth. So that he may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And we recognize by this point that Jesus' preaching is not merely the physical act of conveying information, but it's the onset of a new authority. It's the casting of vision. It's the reiterating of God's intent. It's Jesus acting with power that he has the means to accomplish his purpose. We see that God, as the boss, is the authority alone, and he has a vision for his people. We see God's intention to love people, And we see that God alone has the means or the power to save us from within. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but I've been um, using an acronym called uh, uh, VIM. Vision, Intention, and Means. 
And this is just a simple way that I want to invite us to think about what miracles are in your life. And Dallas Willard uh, exposited this concept of vision, intention, and means uh, thoroughly in the year 2005. And uh, I'm going to give you a resource for that just here, just a second here. Uh, But think about this, that miracles, when miracles happen, it's God saying, I have a vision for what's what you need. I have a vision for where you're at and who you are. I have a vision for what's right and good and true and beautiful in your life. And I have every intention. I've made a decision to make that vision a reality in your life. And I have the means, the power to make that come about. God has vim for you. Vision, intention, and means. And when I think about it, The reason that my life is often stuck or ineffective is because out of these three, vision, intention, or means, I'm always missing one or two of those things. Often, I don't have the power or the means. Sometimes, I don't have the vision. I don't know what's right or wrong. I don't know what I should do. I'm always asking, what should I do? Somebody take responsibility for my life, please, because I just don't know. Or I can't make the decision. I don't have the will to do it. That's intention. So I lack vision, intention, and or means. Miracles are God's vim, vision, intention, and means interacting with us, his people. And when the divine engages with us with vision, intention, and means, miracles result and lives are changed. If you want to read all about You can go to this link here, which is also available in the sermon resources page. It's a wonderfully articulated uh, article about this whole concept of how God uses vision, intention, and means to save us. And he goes through all different help and change throughout human history and says every pattern follows this pattern of vision, intention, and means. And he ends his article with a quote of Albert Albert, uh, Schweitzer, In his book, Quest for the Historical Jesus, I want to read this as an ending to our sermon. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old, by the lakeside. He came to those men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me, and sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands. And to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, He will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings, which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. May God bear upon you his vision, intention, and means. And may you experience a new authority in your life and see life changing miracles. He loves you. He is your help. I invite you to call out to him today. Would you bow your heads? God, we simply pray for you to do miracles in our life. Break the constructs. Break the mold of our lives that are stuck. And take us to a new place. And give us new wine, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.